0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. It's Dr. Zudi Jasser, welcome back another episode this week of reform this on the blaze podcast network i hope all of you uh, had a wonderful thanksgiving were able to relax enjoy the uh, blessings that we have that you have and uh, uh re-engage with family and you know it's it's amazing that it almost took three years for us to finally get to a holiday where there was actual normalcy where there was very little pontification and fear-mongering by the uh, establishment at hand to uh, um, exaggerate uh, the threat of health effects of viruses and other things. And, and you know what I'm talking about, but uh, I don't even want to give it oxygen at this point, where, yes, we've always got concerns and, oh, the fear are not gone. They're even talking about a tri-pandemic of COVID and flu and RSV and all these other things uh, triplicated. But the bottom line is, is uh, I think it's back to uh, business as usual. I think it's back to now a further rationing of health care that is being done because we're seeing this sonic boom effect that many of us have talked about would happen. And uh, disease trading for a couple years now led to delay in care and a number of other organ systems beyond the viral infectious disease to cancers, heart disease, diabetes, hormonal illnesses, on and on that people deferred. And for those who still have their normal quality of life, not sacrificed by A unusual prioritization on one single infectious disease. Uh, We're starting to see and I can tell you as a primary care doc we're seeing a rationing of care that's happening as a result of just an over demand with not enough supply. Primary care docs, not enough supply of appointment times and uh, other abilities for patients to get the care that they need, whether it's not only to get the primary care eval, to get the referral But to also get the testing, the procedures, the biopsies, everything's backed up. What used to take average of two to three weeks to get scheduled now is taking minimum two to three months as a routine. We're starting to see the same type of care that has become the hallmark of perisocialized type systems as you see the NHS in England, Canadian healthcare system, and others that were quasi-free market systems that then... Deteriorated into a pre socialist, peri socialist type systems with alternative pathways for private markets, etc. In the coming episodes, I want to take an episode to talk about the exodus of physicians from medicine in America. There's been over 100,000 physicians that have left the practice of medicine. That would be of the 1 million plus. Doctors that exist, so we're talking about 10% outflow. And what is that from? And as I've said before, I will talk about this in another podcast, but let me depart with this comment that ultimately, yes, the culture wars, the politicization of medicine and its use for shutting down economies and shutting down other Considerations, including discussion of a hypercultural focus of uh, issues, is certainly what led many physicians to the edge of the cliff. But still, what makes them jump off is from the practice of medicine is economic. It is the inability to remain solvent, it is the inability to practice. In a way that you can adjust your prices like every other system so in an inflationary economy that inflationary economy thus creates a economic formula in which we are one of the only businesses in which you cannot increase your prices so as a result of that inflationary economy eventually will shut down primary care will take away the incentive to you know, extend hours beyond a certain amount, and actually, to you know, truth be told, most primary care docs are already working 15 hour plus days. I don't think they have more hours in their day. But if you paid more, if you even adjusted their income, their payments per hour to inflation versus the locked in and and now actually decreased payments that we're seeing because there's more prior auth, there's more obstacles in getting paid for the work that we do do that ultimately physicians are finding other businesses, other practices, other things to do, including retirement, if it's near that time for them. I want to take an episode in the next couple weeks to a month to focus on that exodus and what's behind it and share with you a little bit behind the scenes of what's happening in the practice of medicine in America. Today, though, I want to start talking about Qatar, about FIFA. I'm not, an, I'm not a soccer expert. But I will tell you that that uh, there's a lot to learn about what's happening with FIFA and Qatar's role in Muslim radicalization, in global Islamism. And finally, there's a spotlight being put on that country. And on the peripheries, we're seeing folks paying attention to what they should. Paying attention to a few of the things that many of us have said have been pathological about Qatar. But let's start first about the security situation. Is there a threat? You know, with every massive gathering from Super Bowls to Olympics to other sports events, there's always a fear that these are hard targets that uh, would have a mechanism to get the irrelevant relevant when it comes to mass destruction and terrorism and especially in organizations like ISIS, which were not only soundly defeated militarily under the Trump administration wiped out by General Mattis, but the defeat did not change their ideologies. The existence and the spread of jihad has continued. So... They will try to morph, they will try to re-establish themselves and thus up the ante and increase the chatter. And that's what we've seen. 1.2 million people have descended on the small, tiny emirate of Qatar. And they have deployed forces of security that have included significant assistance from the United States, from the UK, Canada and others. And yet there's still some threat, Israeli intelligence. And actually at the time when, since 2012, Qatar was uh, basically lobbying to get the assignment. And one of the things that was said at the time for years was that Qatar is a high threat, high terror threat state, that even though terrorism actually no knows, knows no borders and pretty much every developed country in the world is a target of some kind because they want to disrupt free markets, they want to disrupt freedom, democracies, and any countries that work with the West. Ultimately, the Islamist terror was thought to be a higher threat in a country like Qatar. Why is that? If you don't know the answer to that, then you're in the right place because uh, I'd, I'd like to make sure that by the end of this broadcast, you understand what the problem is with Qatar. And there's been a lot of folks that get it in the anti-jihad national security realm that have been long talking about uh, whether it's through organizations like Stop Qatar or if it's uh, through exposure of their connections to the Muslim Brotherhood, etc. This is not a new phenomena for any of us that have been in this work for decades. But for those who are just now as soccer fans... Wondering, hey, what is the deal? How is it now? This is one of the first countries that all of a sudden Hollywood, the gay rights movement, and so many others are finally waking up to the issue. Human rights organizations are speaking out about slavery that exists in Qatar and was used to build a lot of the stadiums now that are being used for the events. So this is not new. But recently, Israeli intelligence and leaders recently reported that some chatter from Iran had come. And ultimately, it sort of doesn't make sense when we're talking about Iran. Why? I'll remind you that when the Obama administration released, I don't know, they were called the Dirty Five, Dirty Six, those hardcore terrorists from Gitmo, they were to go back. These war criminals were to go back to the Taliban. And which country had such good, warm relations that they were used as a way station on their way to the Taliban? Qatar. And that's who we negotiated with. Yeah, yeah, I get it. We've got a large military base and military presence in Qatar as part of our fleet there. But maybe it's time to consider closing that base. Maybe it's time to consider, and we've said this for many years, and I've done it in testimony to Congress, because Qatar ideologically sees itself as a caliphate, sees itself as the home base, (laughs) and not in the al-Qaeda. Remember al-Qaeda in Arabic means home base, but similarly as the capital of the neo-caliphate of the 21st century. And on the Sunni side, now, the Sunni Islamists which remember Sunni Islam is 90% of Muslims it's a it's a descriptor of a schism that happened early on in Islam after the Prophet Muhammad passed and there was a division into Sunni and Shia now as far as security threats go the Sunnis have the political Islamists that also materialize militant terrorists like Al-Qaeda ISIS and others and the Shia 10% have their Militant Islamists that materialize into terrorists like Hezbollah and are running a country like the Khomeinists that are terror operations and produce terrorist organizations like the IRGC. So having said that, you will see that the Islamists on both sides work together. The Islamists on both sides, Sunni and Shia, that schism is not related to terror non-terror. No, no, no. It's related to a traditional division about ceremonies, about descendancy of family from the Prophet, about certain interpretations of prayers and holidays and ceremonies, etc., has very little difference when it comes to political Islam and the power of the Sharia state and the power of the clerics. As the Sunni clerics see themselves, even though they're not formally as Powerful as the Shia clerics are, they ultimately oversee an a Islamist clerical path, like we see in Egypt, where Al Azhar is wedded to the regime there, as we see in Malaysia, and in, in so many in so many countries that are Sunni majority. The Islamist Turkey is a great example. Erdogan is a cultish Islamist leader, but has strict control with the dianet ministry which is the governmental appointed and led clerical system that actually filters the friday prayers every week so that they put out a governmental prayer system the sunni islamists of the akp the basically the freedom and justice development party of turkey which is erdogan's party is the islamists of the sunni turkey of the sunni turks and they are islamists they are progenitors of radical islamism supporters of hamas of the brotherhood wherever it might exist and ultimately anyone who deviates from their interpretations of sharia becomes their enemy as we see with uh, many of the other muslims in in turkey that are non-islamists so let's go back to qatar and FIFA. Remember, why would there be chatter of threat from Iran? Well, first of all, Iran is dealing with their women life and liberty movement that now continues. They have sentenced to death tens upon tens. They have slaughtered hundreds upon hundreds and they've tortured thousands in them trying to quell the uprising to quell the demonstrations that are continuing in a slow boil to boil the establishment of Iran that finally, uh, and this revolution might be beginning to chip away at the rocks that are the wall of the establishment of the Islamist regime in Tehran. And we saw that the soccer team in Iran stayed silent they did not honor the iranian national anthem and they did that in solidarity with the women of the women of with the women of the women life and liberty movement of iran and god bless them cuz you know these are uh, folks that are on the dole of the regime that have been training for soccer their whole life to to win And yet, when push came to shove on the world stage, they made a statement. They may pay for it, they may not, because ultimately the regime is trying to quell this. Now, one way to get the West out of their hair, as even the Biden administration, as as obsequious and appeasing as they've been, have been concerned about their ramp-up for nuclear material and nuclear threat, and nuclear weaponry, and also other types of weaponry, missiles and drones, etc. that they've been actually helping Russia with in the Ukrainian war. Now, with that, it would be quite a diversion for them to, just like with the Houthis and the terror they've done in Yemen against the Saudis and elsewhere, why not drive an act of terror to distract the world on the world stage away And and what Iran does is they have proxies on proxies and they try to claim that they have nothing to do with it. And this all was exposed very well when the Trump administration made it a point to identify explicitly for the first time a state-acting military arm, the IRGC, the Islamic Republican Guard Corps, as a terror organization. And the Biden administration, surprise, surprise, almost tried to remove that designation, but they didn't as from what I understand. But as much as Iran might be a threat to FIFA, I don't think they are. I don't think because ultimately, economically, they have few friends with the sanctions that they have been under in the past, and one of those close friends is Qatar. Qatar, in its neo-caliphate aspirations, has long sought refuge, especially after its blockade, that the Saudis and the other GCC, the Gulf states in their Arab Sunni regime cooperative, if you will, that Qatar used to be a part of, and they recently actually in 21 brought back into the fold, but for four years, from 2017 to 21, there was a blockade of Qatar, and Iran was their only salvation. But Iran had long been their salvation because they share natural gas fields, they share a lot of economic sharing with Iran and Qatar together, which has been their safety net when the Saudis did not... when the Saudis did not uh, uh, ultimately want to play in the sand with the Islamists anymore. And I'll remind you in 2017... MBS for as heinously authoritarian as he is had one of the targets correct again methods were evil but the target is correct which was the Muslim Brotherhood they stopped funding Muslim Brotherhood movements, Islamist movements in the West and realized they had been feeding a pit bull that was destroying their rear end and otherwise domestically and globally and they finally told their fellow princes to stop funding them and that was in conjunction with what they did in 2017 against qatar because the biggest font of funding and fuel for the islamist movement globally is the the muslim brotherhood sunni wise is qatar and the saudis have been doing it for some time for decades probably 50 years as we look at institutions like the Georgetown Center for Muslim Christian Understanding that Prince Talal bin Walid uh, has has long been a benefactor but then a few hundred princes got put into Ritz-Carlton prison and their assets were seized and in 2017, after four months they said, uncle, let us out please, we will stop funding the Muslim Brotherhood and from what I understand is it's stopped since then now, there was a move to isolate Qatar. And if only the U.S. government had pulled out our base at that time, I think we might have been able to further marginalize them. But at this point, point, our one of our largest bases is still there. At this point, the Qataris still have Islamist militants that they cheer on, Holocaust deniers that Al Jazeera puts on and then denies that they did anti-western anti-se- anti-westernism anti anti-semitism and every other form of demonization of the west continues to radicalize millions upon millions of muslims from the qatari media so never forget the ability of al jazeera and qatar media to radicalize and to be one of the central fonts of of the evil that we are fighting for those of us in the muslim reform movement What about other chatter in FIFA and the security threat that exists? So the issue is, again, there was even significant chatter on telegram channels that uh, basically said to ISIS sympathizers, and this was revealed by the uh, Memory, the Middle East Media Research Institute, and they showed that they they revealed that the pro ISIS Telegram channel uh, have been uh, sharing series of posts earlier in the few weeks ago earlier in November, encouraging supporters to carry out violent and biological attacks at the World Cup. The chatter involved Al Qaeda, ISIS, Al Qaeda, and the Arabian Peninsula, and others. Basically, calling upon targeting the World Cup, including buses, trains, food courts, and hotels, according to UltraScan. Threat levels were said by the researchers to have been growing since November 17th with one communication referring to a big party that ends with shots and explosion. From the websites and news agency Metro.co.uk. They also saw that uh, um, other comments like cleansing campaigns are ongoing. Be part of the World Cup in Qatar and score your goals. The goal is open. The followers, these followers want, quote, violent and biological acts since they are considered this a golden opportunity, quote, unquote. And God help us all. Security agencies, though, again, as I said at the beginning, it's a hard target. These are, ultimately likely only just to be chatter that I'm sure is being shut down, chased down. And at the end of the day, the other solace, if there is any, is that Qatar has had hardly any acts of terrorism against their own domestic state. Why is that? Well, um, would ISIS attack themselves? (laughs) So this is the issue is, well, Qatar is not... ISIS. They have certainly been the source upstream of radicalizing and a sympathetic bank account, a sympathetic government wink and a nod, a sympathetic intelligence operations to the likes of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, ISIS, and other of these common travelers and sympathizers to radical Islamism. If you look in Syria, one of the reasons the revolution was radicalized were basically three countries. Initially, it included Saudi Arabia, but then primarily it included Turkey and Qatar, two Islamist viral ideological countries and leaders, Urduan and the King Al-Thani of Qatar. And their radicalization, their belief in Caliphism, their belief in the Sharia state, all of which led to folks like ISIS and others feeling that this was a sympathetic country to them. So again, when the mafia holds a party, now, if it's a mafia from another family, they might attack them during the party. But if it's the same family, they might not. So Sunni attacks of radical Islamists who feel that one of their primary benefactors is the Qatar royal family, they may not attack them as a result and think twice, even though they are salivating at the thought of it, of it being a golden opportunity. Would they attack elsewhere? Perhaps, but again, it's only going to get the wrath of the Qataris, which I don't think they're downstream... Sympathizers are going to care much uh, uh, for. So again, the security situation I think ends up, as much as it might not end up being that significant, it does teach us a lot. And probably the the biggest threat is Russia. Now, while Russia is also in that Iran, Qatar, China mix versus the West, they've been banned from FIFA. And, oh, Iran today called, or this week called for a ban on the United States from FIFA. So you see where the roles are separating, and that while Russia is a soft ally of Qatar, their connection to Iran and China might ultimately prevent them from completing an attack. But as they're losing miserably in Ukraine and not able to participate they may also drive just like the Russians drove the Chechnyans to commit acts of terror in Syria and elsewhere even in their own country to legitimize military control and dictatorship there are things that the Russians might do that ultimately can drive others to do things that are quite militant before I leave you this week I want to uh, just cover a few tidbits, first of all the Saudi Arabian soccer team. There's a lot of... some appropriate, much inappropriate, hullabaloo about the victory of the Saudis over Argentina. And as you know, Argentina is one of the premier soccer teams on the planet with uh, star players that uh, are icons globally. And to see the Saudis, who barely have a footprint in the soccer realm... Defeat them is something to behold and certainly something to make note of. Now, a lot of that was overplayed in that it was a preliminary match. It really wasn't part of uh, the FIFA elimination tournament and uh, uh, on and on. But uh, again, congrats to the Saudi team. Um, but, you know, something came out in the news this week, right after that, that I think is just so, so typical of these tribal. Just grotesquely opulent tribes that are that call themselves human and yet do things that just belie their belie the nature of humanity and just express the the core of evil, which is a story that said that the Saudi Saudi Arabia fo- Saudi Arabia's footballers were to be gifted new Rolls Royces, so. Um, and the Rolls Royce Phantoms, which are a half a million dollars a piece—four hundred ninety-eight thousand dollars to be exact—for uh, beating Argentina at Qatar twenty twenty-two. Multiple stories across the planet, from American media to European, to global media, that said Saudi Arabian footballers were going to be gifted that uh, each of them a, a Rolls Royce, and uh, that they came back from behind, and that they divorced, that they de- they they deserve. The opulence and gifts because they overcame Lionel Messi's penalty. A public holiday was also declared in Saudi Arabia a day after their historic World Cup win, a public holiday. I mean, you know, this is the issue is that why haven't there been any products that come out of the Saudi Arabia other than oil? any ingenuity any any small business type startup organizations they're building trillion dollar cities in the middle of the desert but using foreign technology to do it paying people grotesque amounts of money while their own people are on the dole but do nothing or very little because they're not incentivized as human beings but they're simply given cash and the and the bigotry of low expectations i talk about that in the west on how so many entities from Hollywood to media have have very small expectations when it comes to Muslim populations about human rights, about democracy, about critical thinking and intellectualism and modernity, women's rights, and so many other aspects that their bigotry is so significant that their expectations of these societies are minimal and minuscule. Well, even look at the tyrants that claim they care about their people Will want to shower them with a Rolls-Royce as if they're as if each player somehow can be bought off. That their victory, one game, results in a need to reward them. Almost as if it's and again, we've talked about this in this country with the, the parents that want to give every kid a trophy and no more competition, no more, no more ranking in schools, none of that. It's all from the same type of philosophy is that without competition or when you minimize it and shower somebody with praise and gifts on just one little minimal achievement, you trivialize the entire endeavor. And this is what's been one of the plagues. I talk about this in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, in which the tribalism, in which human nature among many Arab populations after living under dictatorship has created a viral amount of lying, deception, materialism, and a, a, a lack of focus on the priorities in life like morality, integrity, and honor. True honor, not the honor of false Islamic theocracy, of honor killing and honor other evil natures, but honor of integrity, of honesty, of humility. Now, that's being destroyed by giving athletes who, by the way, I bet you many of whom don't want that, those cars. And sure enough, the latest story is that now the coach of the Saudi team said, this is a false story. It never came. It was never true. We were never going, they were never going to get Rolls Royces. That's not happening. Yeah, because a real sports coach. That's not how he rewards. Yes, they need to be paid, and certainly there's a free market nature to it. We saw the Saudis doing this with the way they're trying to destroy the golf industry, where they leech off and pull off the stars in America to pay them to do this sort of false competition where it's just like world wrestling, and they're just playing golf, and... Many in the West, I think, are misinterpreting that as somehow trying to compete against the PGA. And the PGA had its own problems. I've talked about this on a previous podcast. And I'm talking about its own monopolistic problems and and uh, control of the market in the U.S. But I guarantee you not a way to fix monopolies and control of free markets is by taking a government with more money than God, as they say, that can just dump cash after cash with no incentive uh, um, built in for ingenuity and creativity, that somehow that's going to become a competitor? That's not a competitor. That's like China taking over our markets by using slave labors and other things. That somehow that becomes a competitor against us. They need to be sanctioned, not competed against. It doesn't work that way. And it's the same thing with the Saudis in that they need to be sanctioned and not competitors because their methods of competition are anti-free markets, anti-human, and are fictitious, artificial. So yes, they can declare public holidays if they want or whatever they want, but they haven't even entered the tournament yet. They haven't even participated in the tournament yet. It was a preliminary match, and to hand Rolls-Royce's willy-nilly without even an elimination match is Demeaning, I would think, and I think the coach, their coach, at least understood that from the standpoint of unit cohesion and otherwise. And last, I want to end it on good news coming out of Iran this week: Uh, the Iranian revolution, the movements across the streets, set fire to the ancestral home of the Islamic Republic founder, Khomeini. Remember the, the the dude who came from Paris and was beginning to slowly, over a few years before 79, radicalize the population by sending thousands upon thousands of cassette tapes of his sermons and and talking about taking over in a revolution against the Shah. That revolution of 79, which set that country back centuries, ultimately was started and still continues today with the Khomeinist theocrats that have now slaughtered hundreds of thousands since that time, have executed tens of thousands, and have continued to rain terror on their own people and on the world through proxies in Iraq, in Lebanon, Hezbollah, the Houthis, and otherwise. And there's a sense of relief when you see the symbolism That a revolution of protesters in Iran that can set fire to the ancestral home of the Islamic Islamic Republic's founder Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, two months into the anti-regime protest movement that happened last Friday, is just beyond heartwarming. And the house in the city of Khomein, in western Markazi province, was shown ablaze on very, on a number of uh, videos. The day before, with crowds of jubilant protesters marching past, according to images posted on social media. This year is the year, now they said, of blood. Now I hope they don't, they can do it without being violent, these revolutionaries, but you know, they've had enough. They've had enough with the torture coming from the regime, and this is war. And at times, certainly is just war for the domestic. Uh, uh, dissidents in Iran that see their loved ones vanish, that see people imprisoned in some of the worst prisons on the planet. Khomeini is said to have been born in at the house in the town of Khomein from where his surname derives at the turn of the century. The Dubai-based Arab news outlet Al Arabiya added that current Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei will be toppled, they said. And Khomeini became a leader, a cleric, deeply critical of the U.S.-backed Shah Pahlavi and moved into exile, but then returned in triumph from France in 79 to lead the Islamic Revolution. Khomeini died in 89, but remains the subject of adulation by the clerical leadership under successor Ayatollah Ali Khomeini. The house was eventually turned into a museum commemorating Khomeini. It was not immediately clear what damage it sustained, but the protests sparked by the death of Mahsa Amini, who was arrested by the Morality Police, have posed the biggest challenge from the streets of Iran to its leaders and clerics since the 1979 revolution. And they've been fueled by anger over the obligatory headscarf for women, women originally imposed by Khomeini, but having turned into a movement calling for the end to the Islamic Republic itself. It's not just about the hijab, it's about the way of life, about the Sharia state, about the need to defeat theocracy. So if there's ever been life being breathed into Muslim reform, into a movement against Islamism, yes, this is on the Shia side in Iran, but it goes Sunni Shia. Obviously the images of Khomeini's home burning, the images of protesters day after day, in various parts of Iran continuing to boil slowly will ultimately continue to chip away at the wall of theocracy. So folks, thank you for joining me this week. A lot to cover there. And uh, um, please tell your friends about Reform This Radio on podcast, uh, where you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D R Z U H D I J A S S E R, and also at Reform This Radio. And also find our podcast at iTunes and uh, SoundCloud and uh, anywhere else uh, at Blaze TV, Blaze Radio Podcast Network, and also find my website at AIFDemocracy.org. This is your faithful American patriot, Zudi Jasser. We'll be back soon. God bless.